This is not a test. This is not a test. Please remain calm. Unburied dead are coming back to life and seeking human victims. Seeking human victims. Pretend, Hjalmar. There was nothing spiritual in your eyes when you looked at that girl. <laughs> and returning for another season with us, and we're glad to have him. Big Daddy Grease, Jason Griswold. My salad has been used four or five times this week. <laughs> and rounding it out, co-founder of One Good Scare, the one, the only, the great Mooji. A masterpiece of construction built upon the ruins of the masterpiece of destruction. <laughs> Goddamn, that was a terrible accident. <laughs> I'm glad you, you get an A for effort. You fucking tried. Yeah, this movie had a lot of great one-liners, um, some of which I'll probably be stealing for promos at some point. <clears throat> you didn't hear that here, though. Uh, loved uh, get to revisit this film I've, I'd had seen it before I'd seen it a few years ago uh, it was one of the movies I'd, I'd not seen it before that if you go back to the archives I know we're always plugging the archives but we gotta make a dollar somehow patreon.com slash OG scare for just one dollar in fact per month you can unlock the entire 16 season archive of the show the podcast feed goes back a couple seasons usually but it tends to drop off it doesn't host all of those episodes. So if you want to go find all of those episodes all in one nice, convenient place, patreon.com slash OG scare. One of the most popular seasons to date was our dive into universal monsters and universal horror. And we told a great historical story of the rise of the early horror film with that season. And one thing we didn't do was cover movies outside of the Universal Monster franchise, like Dracula, Frankenstein, Mummy, etc. Uh, but there were a lot of great movies that were released as Universal Horror Pictures at that time that were 
around those that didn't include those characters. Movies like The Old Dark House, uh, movies like The Raven, movies like fucking uh, Murders in the Room. And a lot of these movies all had something in common. You know, they had one of the big stars of the Universal monster movies. You either have Karloff or Lugosi or someone similar um, in these movies. And so we come to The Black Cat, and that's when I first watched it. Was you know, Even though we didn't cover those movies on the show, I was trying to keep up and watch all of the Universal monster movies in order, including the ones that weren't just Dracula, Frankenstein, The Mummy. Uh, so that's the first time I saw The Black Cat, and I instantly fell in love with it. And, I mean, you'll find out later, uh, you know, how I felt it held up in a more scrutinized and intense viewing. But what about y'all? This was my first time seeing it, so... Yeah, I don't even know that I necessarily heard of it till talking to you about it. I've definitely seen this movie, like, but it had to have been, like, a long time ago because there are parts of the movie, like, there are scenes that, like, once they showed up, like, I remembered, but I don't remember, like, you know, the full viewing. So it's probably one of those that I saw on cable and just, you know, didn't remember a lot of. But like I said, there were a couple of scenes that, like, when they came up, I was like, oh, I know what's happening here. So it is something I've seen before, but... Um, this is the first time I've watched it in a really long time. No surprise here. Hadn't seen it or heard of it until we did it for the podcast. I mean, well, I, there's no way I would have heard of it before now. <laughs> and now also don't get it confused with another film of the same name that also stars Bela Lugosi, the black cat from 1941. Also a universal monster picture. Uh, nothing to do with this film or remotely similar to it. But... Uh, Worth noting that another one exists. If you're looking to watch the film before the show, you want to pick up the 1934 version is the one you want to hunt down. All right. Before we dig into the film, we're going to welcome, of course, the return for yet another season of our pals over at Horror Pain Gore Death Productions as a sponsor. That's HorrorPainGoreDeath.com. Mike Giuliano and gang are bringing us some of the best in extreme music once again this year. And our musical guest tonight is a band called Percussor. They are out of the Philadelphia area. They return home to Hall Pain Gore Death with the new album Ravenous Despondency. They originally formed in 1996 and had a brief two-year existence before reforming in 2014 and signing to HPGD. Ravenous Despondency is the final full-length album from the violent death metal destroyers, spewing the hate one last time with unrelenting aggression and pure loathing of mankind. With lyrics inspired by the self-destruction of human beings and the eroding world crumbling around before our very eyes, Percussor finished their musical career with a pure death metal testimony of sonic terror for fans of Bolt Thrower, Celtic Frost, Death, Deicide, Destruction, Morbid Angel, Obituary, Possessed, Slayer, Sodom, Venom, and Voivod. What a murderer's rule of influences. Here is Percussor with the song Ulterior Treachery off of Ravenous Despondency, kicking off this season of Seeking Human Victims. So free, you're nothing but a waste You lie and scheme, will hide your true face A coward, no shame, delusional, disgrace Accepting your 
1934, directed by Edgar G. Ulmer. We're looking at The Black Cat. Who was Edgar Ulmer? He was a Jewish Moravian, Austrian American film director who mainly worked on Hollywood B movies and other low budget productions, earning the epithet The King of PRC due to his extremely prolific output on the said Poverty Rose studio. His stylish and eccentric works came to be appreciated by auteur theory espousing film critics in the years following his retirement. Ulmer's most famous productions include this film and the film noir movie Detour from 1945. Although Edgar Allan Poe would be presumed an influence, he's given a suggested by credit, the film has very little Almost nothing to do with his nineteen or his 1843 short story, The Black Cat. Instead, Ulmer and writer Peter Rurick, who was also known under a pen name Paul Kane as a pulp detective writer, came up with the story which exploits what was a sudden public interest in psychiatry. And Rurick wrote the screenplay, who is best known for his novel Fast One, which is considered to be a landmark of the pulp fiction genre and was called The High Point in the hard-boiled, in the ultra-hard-boiled manner by Raymond Chandler. The cinematography was handled by John J. Meskel, 
an American cinematographer. He'd photographed such silent films as Ernest Lubitsch, The Student Prince in Old Heidelberg in 1927, but is best known for his work in the 1930s at Universal, where he often worked on the films of James Whale. Of course, you might remember him from the Universal Monster season. He was the cinematographer on Bride of Frankenstein. Some say his grandiose, effective camera movements, in which off the, ca- the camera would often track completely around or across a set, uh, were quite innovative, and he was famous for that. The music was not done by any one person. So this was pre, this was a pretty landmark thing that they did with the music here. This is before they hired people to do a score necessarily, but there was classical pieces out there. So they included a score consisting of excerpts from several classical pieces uh, composed by Litz, Tchaikovsky, Chopin, and others uh, running through nearly 80% of the film, and that was compiled by Heinz Romheld. The film was among the earlier movies with an almost continuous music score, and it helped create and popularize the psychological horror subgenre by emphasizing atmosphere, eerie sounds, the darker side of the human psyche, and emotions like fear and guilt to deliver its scares. Yeah, I have to say, this is the first of the films I've watched in a while where I actually did notice the soundtrack, and I thought it was expertly laid out and it's pretty wild that it was just kind of a frankenstein pun intended of uh, various classical pieces to great effect that it was used but uh yeah not really a a person that they hired to do a score but uh, someone that they hired to splice stuff together but i agree with grizz i think it's very effective i also think I, i noticed a couple of times in the film i was like man that's a really cool shot it's a lot of like experimental stuff doing i really like like when they would show you the interior of the house that uh, that uh, Karloff's character lives in, where they stop at, like where they show that it's dark and the lights come up. And just the shots that they used for that were all very unique, and it kind of made the house seem alive, I thought, in a lot of ways. And I just, um, yeah, I, I thought both, both things, very primitive at the time, but already some really great creatives involved. I agree, especially the set design and the cinematography together. You know, the set had, you know, obviously we're talking about the 1930s, but it's there's still like a modern feel to it. But also, you know, it's almost a gothic kind of story. But I, I thought the set design was fantastic and, you know, just really a, a great overall package. And of course, as we talk about the cast, uh, it's great that you have here probably for the first time i will we'll find that out for sure in the auditorium but if i I believe it is the first time you have karloff and lugosi together on screen they had each anchored previously in 1931 uh both of them dracula and frankenstein and so now you have the two biggest stars of Universal together in a picture. And so Karloff is our main heel. He is the character Hjalmar Polzig, an architect and former friend of Vetus Vertigast, who has uh, got a lot of secrets. He's basically, uh, he was in the war in the same unit, and he betrayed them. And so uh, this is like this tale of revenge and we find out what a sinister bastard he really is, um, that he's taken Vetus Vertigast's wife, daughter, and kept him in their house, and, you know, strongly implied that he murdered the wife, if not outright sad. And then you see him off screen murder the daughter in the film, 
So, you know, he's doing these heinous things to just torment this guy. And I mean, this is a long game of fucking revenge type of movie. Karloff, you can go back to the Universal Monster season to hear us gush about him in multiple pictures. But uh, I, this is one of my favorite roles of him. He's so fucking sinister in this and so creepy. And his presence is so commanding every time he's on screen. Uh, yeah, that that hairline really gives a, a, almost like a cartoonish effect. Um, it, was, it was tripping me out a bit. I had to look up some normal pictures uh, just to, like, remind me. <laughs> <laughs> what he looked like because like the the makeup was so seamless um that it I was like did they just like shave off part of his hair um but yeah that the look was incredibly striking and like Dan said just very just very commanding when he's on screen but uh it looked like um like if the devil from Powerpuff Girls or Satan from Powerpuff Girls was like a person. And I love that. Yeah, I think for me in this, Karloff, he is one dimensional. And I mean that in like the best way possible in that the whole time he maintains such a cold and calculated demeanor that, you know, he, I mean, he, the movie's basically about him and his rival with Lugosi. You know, the, uh, the Americans are just kind of a side plot almost, but he just stays so focused in that. And I just thought, the performance was fantastic. And then we had the legendary Bela Lugosi as Dr. Vetus Vertigast, the doctor and World War One veteran who is on a mission to find his wife. We find out that uh, due to Polzig's betrayal, Vertigast ended up a POW. He had been a prisoner of war for 15 years and had gotten out seeking his revenge. Um, and so this is the uh, ghosty is also fantastic in here. I, I wish we had some captions on the version of this that we watched because his accent is so thick. There are times where it's hard to understand what he's saying, uh, but he's, he's just fucking I mean, he's a guy with revenge on the mind and he is playing the calculated game here. He's got a plan and you can see him almost fighting with himself. The whole time, you know, on whether or not he just wants to attack and kill this fucking guy or let his plan go through to ultimately get his revenge. And of course, as you find out all the other horrible shit that he endures in the movie, like, okay, he finds out that his wife is dead, that he likely killed her long ago and likely was having sex with her corpse is implied as well. This movie's pretty fucked up as a pre-code movie. It was before the movie movie code later became the MPAA kind of came in so it's very sexual it's very dark it's very it's very mean and graphic in some ways um and so yeah so you know he comes to find he finds his wife and that's the first blow and then it's later revealed that Polzig has his daughter as well who's now an adult and he's married her and has her living with him but of course when she finds out that Vertigast is alive then Polzig kills her too so now he's killed his wife and he's killed his daughter, and then he has to enact this ultimate revenge of skinning the motherfucker alive. Um, I mean, this is a weird-ass movie. I, I don't... Things in Universal got a lot more, like, black and white, I guess, for lack of a better word, in terms of storyline and stuff. This movie has layers, and it has a lot going on. 
Yeah, for sure. And I thought it was interesting, you know, seeing um, seeing Lugosi, you know, playing like the guy who's like not, you know, the strongest dude there. You're used to him being Dracula and him kind of being, you know, like the toughest guy or, you know, the big bad. And in this movie, you know, seeing where he, you know, had to play like a little bit weaker than uh, Karloff was pretty cool to see him doing something a little bit different. But yeah, this movie is like very like on the line of being like super dark. It's like there's lots of times where they don't quite go there, but like they're like a step away from it being like super, super dark. Like you said, like his revenge plan is he's going to fucking like flay him. <laughs> so like that's pretty crazy. Um, and then, yeah, they imply all sorts of like, you know, pretty nasty stuff has been going on. You know, it's one of those where you can just, you can just assume, you know, he's somehow using his like satanic magic to keep the wife looking, you know, young and beautiful in a, in a case he's sleeping right next to the daughter. So they don't have to tell you what he's doing for you to, you know, use your imagination and know, you know, what that's about. So yeah, man, like it's one of those movies that like you could watch as a younger person probably and not realize like how dark it actually is. Um, Yeah. I, I can't recall off the top of my head. Did he did he get in bed with her? Did they show them both oh, in the yeah. same bed? Yeah. That's that's wild for 1934. I mean, like like you said, it's pre-code, but uh I mean like married couples didn't even share beds like in family sitcom until what? Like the, 70s. the late I would say the late seventies. Yeah, this yeah, was considered pretty extreme at the time. Scandalous. Yeah, and it's, basically porn. Yeah, and it's, it's like, and the code like really, really changes like a lot because you can find, like, if you go back and watch a lot of like the like noir films of this period and stuff, like they're all like, you know, would in even today be like considered like, you know, pretty scandalous, like, in a lot of the stuff that's going on in those movies. This is definitely, like, on the extreme of that, but there was some stuff like this, like, you know, before the code, and that's, you know, when when that came out, that's what really, like, fucking, you know, set it back and got us, like, our, you know, like, really, like, you know, hokey, like, you know, Nick at Night type black and white shows that we got later. Yeah, no doubt. I just want to say before we move on, speaking to Lugosi's performance, you know, obviously everybody would know him as Dracula, but I think, you know, given the material here, you know, it's a very short movie, but I think anytime he's on screen, like he, he does show a great depth and range. And I think like, you know, he and Karloff, I think it's just a contest of who owns this movie. Oh yeah. I, I feel like there was always like a professional rivalry with them, but you got you think that they're having a ball just fucking trying to out chew the scenery against each other and doing a fucking phenomenal job on both ends. A couple more things about Lugosi before we move on to him. One, I like that A, they cast Dracula as a baby face but lean the fuck into the fact that he's Dracula. So like the, you know, the young American couple is on this train and Bella Lugosi has to share their cabin. And they're like, this guy's a little fucking creepy, you know? <laughs> so you don't really know. Like that, that's what they play with your expectations. So you don't really know like where it's going to go until you hear the story all play out. Um, I, I liked that. I thought that was cool. 
And then the only way they even tie this into Black Cats is with Lugosi's character, Vertigas, being deathly afraid of Black Cats and having a phobia. Every time they appear, he, like, has the vapors and freaks out. Which is weird in and of itself because the cat, like, gets killed and then is in the next scene. Must have had nine lives. Yeah, I mean... Early in the movie, they imply, like, a little bit that, like, the cat is, like, somehow connected to, like, you know, the satanic magic that um, Karloff can do, but it doesn't really, like, go into it very much after that. Like, I No, thought, this like, movie implies a lot without, we've already said that, but it implies a lot without saying it, and I, I like that in some ways. Yeah, I do like that. I just it makes you think that the cat's going to be a little bit more important than, you know, it turns out to be. But like I said, that's fine. Um, you know, probably. Yeah, you don't, you don't give a fuck. The story was good enough. And you're like, okay, well. <laughs> yeah, just it, just know that the, uh, the cat is less involved in this movie than in that Stephen King movie about a cat. The cat's eye. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And you did make a good point on the way that, it, uh, the way that they, you know, treated the fact that, like, you know, people knew that Lugosi was Dracula because, yeah, they do set that up, like, on the train. And then also, I mean, like, he's like righteous and like the revenge that he's going after, but he doesn't give a fuck about, like, you know, how to, how he's going to get it. Like, he ultimately, like, tries to help the Americans, like, they're in the last scene where he gets shot. But prior to that, like, he's, totally okay with like well if they like accidentally get killed then that's fine like you know me getting my revenge is the thing here i mean he lets the you know the 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 uh the guy get beat up and then he lets the lady you know go into like this sacrifice where he doesn't really have a plan of how he's going to get her out of it he's just kind of waiting to see if you know what happens so like he seems like you know pretty okay with them dying to an extent. Yeah, the, definitely not a black and white film, you know, in terms of demeanors and faces and heels. There's a lot of there's a lot of shit going on. But anyway, more of the cast. David Manners uh, played Peter Allison, the American husband. He's a writer, the husband of Joan. You can go back to our Dracula episode back on the Universal Monster season to learn more about the man that played Jonathan Harker in that film, the ultimate milk toast. He's not as much of a milk toast in this movie as Jonathan Harker. He stands up and fights for his girl a little bit, but, uh, you know, he's still, the result is the same. <laughs> he's fine. He was, you know, pretty stereotypical American actor uh, of the day. I think the, uh, the scene at the end where they kind of, you know, oh, they're, they've escaped the, the torturous monster and now they're on the train ride home and he just gets that extra kick in the balls with a bad review of his book was pretty funny. Yeah, that was quite comical uh, that he goes through this crazy ass experience and then he's told that he's like, and by the way, your book fucking sucked. And then we had Jacqueline Wells, who was uh, Joan Allison. Peter's wife. She was captured by Polzik. She'd been in a lot of movies and films, over uh, 80 films between 1923 and 1957. By 1932, she was already a veteran film actress. Her earliest talkies were with the Hal Roach studio where she worked in short subject comedies with Laurel and Hardy, Charlie Chase, and The Boyfriends. 
She began freelancing, working in supporting roles at large studios and in leading roles at small studios. Her in uh, her role in the 1936 Laurel and Hardy feature, The Bohemian Girl, won her a contract at Columbia Pictures, where she started a succession of minor features, mostly action. She left Columbia in 1939 and resumed her freelance career in 1941. She was offered a contract by Warner Brothers on the condition that she changed her name. So Jacqueline Wells was considered a faded B-picture name. So she chose the name Julie Bishop because it matched the monograms on her luggage when she uh, had that made as Jacqueline Brooks when she was married. She made 16 films at Warner Brothers, including supporting roles in Action in the North Atlantic with Humphrey Bogart. Uh, she was also uh, in Princess O'Rourke with Olivia de Havilland and Robert Cummings. She met her second husband there. Uh, she was also Errol Flynn's leading lady in Northern Pursuit. And she was in Rhapsody in Blue, the George Gershwin biopic as his wife, and closed out her Warner years in the 1946 film Cinderella Jones. She uh, went on to work in TV, ultimately notably opposite Bob Cummings in his situation comedies and retired from acting in 1957. So she was our resident damsel in distress of the day and did a fine job of that. I thought uh, she had a little bit more pep and personality than some of the actor actresses of this time yeah still a pretty standard delivery though um very hallmark like you said of the time of the uh acting like in as far as like cadence and delivery and um <clears throat> dramatic emotion dramatic shows of emotion a lot of uh screaming and fainting happening um but you know she she wasn't totally bland so she had that going for her and then we had Lucille Lund as Karen Polzig, as well as Vertigast's daughter, Karen Jr. <laughs> uh, she plays the corpse of Karen's mother and the daughter, both named Karen, is what I was getting there. Her first film was Horseplay in 1933, in which she had a minor role with her first noticeable, noticeable film being opposite Robert Young in the 1933 movie Saturday's Millions. In 1934, she starred in six films including this one. Brief, but effective. She screamed and died very well. Egon Brecker was the major domo, Polzig's servant. He also served as the chief director of Vienna's Stott Theater before entering the motion picture world. Moved to Hollywood in the late 20s to appear in foreign language versions of American films. In the mid-1930s, he had appeared in many horror movies, including this film, Werewolf of London, The Black Room, Mark of the Vampire, and The Devil Doll and worked steady, steadily in the espionage films of the 30s and 40s with his Slavic accent, landing him roles both noble and villainous. One of his largest screen roles was in the 1946 film So Dark the Night. The Major Domo! He was uh, the servant that was not in on the conspiracy. Not was in on the, the plot. That looked really weird. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I think he invented the Beatle haircut with this movie. Right? Oh, my Lord. And speaking of servants, we had Henry Corning as Thamel, Vertigast servant. His most notable roles were as the villainous Dickon Malbetti of the Cat of the Guard and Errol Flynn's Adventures of Robin Hood. And in this film, he was a contract player in Universal in the 40s. He had tiny parts in other films, such as The Wolfman. He also appeared in a bit role in the 20th Century Fox Adventures of Sherlock Holmes with Basil Rathbone in 1939 
He went on to appear in supporting a bit parts in seven of 12 Universal Sherlock Holmes films. And then the rest of these are very small roles, but we had Henry Armada as the sergeant who investigates the bus crash. He was an American character actor and appeared in at least 150 films, beginning in the silent movies. His last film was released in 1946, the year after his death. We had Albert Conti as the lieutenant who investigates the bus crash. George Davis as the bus driver who dies. Anna Duncan as Polzig's maid, who's uncredited. And John Carradine, the legend himself, makes a quick cameo as one of the cult members. He's the one that plays the organ. Shooting dates and locations. It was shot in 1934, early in the year at Universal Studios on the lot in Hollywood. You might not be able to see any of this set, but if you go there, you can still see some of the Universal Studio lots in Hollywood on the tram tour. You can. And uh, we don't plug this as much as we used to, but if you want to book a trip there, you can contact Annie at Suitcase in a Dream Travel and she can hook you up. Man, a podcast host hooking you up with a cool vacation. It's pretty interesting. And with that odd and interesting fact, let's open the door to the auditorium. Strange truths and morbid curiosities will be revealed inside the auditorium. Strange truths and morbid curiosities will be revealed inside the auditorium. So the character of Hjalmar Polzig drew inspiration from the life of occultist Alistair Crowley. While the name Polzig was borrowed from the architect, architect Hans Polzig, whom Ulmer claimed to have worked with on the sets for Paul Wagner's silent film The Golem in 1920. A great horror film, if you haven't seen that. And you like silent films. I know some people can't do that. In 1941, Lugosi appeared in a comedy horror mystery film with the same title. We talked about this earlier in the show. Also named after and ostensibly suggested by Edgar Allan Poe's short story. And that movie starred Basil Rathbone, but it bears little relation to this film other than the presence of Lugosi. Edgar G. Ulmer admitted in an interview that Edgar Allan Poe's story was credited to draw public attention and had nothing to do with the story in the movie. So not inspired by, not a little, had nothing, absolutely nothing to do with the story. And Basil Rathbone, isn't that who was playing um, Sherlock Holmes yes. in okay. the seven of of 12 Universal Studios Sherlock Holmes films that had bit parts of Harry Cording. Wow. Correct. Rathbone was a pretty big star for Universal at the time, but only dabbled in the horror pictures. He was much more in the mystery world, but he did pop up in this. I think he's in the old dark house. He's in a couple of, of other Universal horror movies, but not a ton. The satanic prayer pulls a chance during the black mass scene consists of random Latin phrases the most recognizable being cum grano salis, which means with a grain of salt. The complete chant is uh, in English, with a grain of salt, a brave man may fall, but he cannot yield to air as human. The wolf may change his skin, but not his nature. Truth is mighty and will prevail. External actions show internal secrets. Remember when life's path is steep. To keep your mind even. The loss that is not known is no loss at all. Heavy thunder 
with a grain of salt a brave man may fall but he cannot yield by fruit not leaves judge a tree every madman thinks everybody mad who repents from sinning is almost innocent so somebody had a like philosophical phrase book <laughs> inspirational quote book from their latin class and they're like got it so they're like how many fortune cookies do they have to eat to write that speech gonna say maybe somebody went to catholic school but all these mysteries and more are answered not on this show because we don't fucking know but someone might if you know hit us up on the social media follow us on twitter at og scare facebook one good scare productions youtube og scare we are out there and you can find us you can also find my personal social medias like instagram revdan wilson twitter revdan wilson hive now revdan wilson um where, you know, I'll post shit about One Good Scare as well. Because I don't want to maintain 15 personal and company accounts. So, <laughs> something's got to give there. Uh, while working on the film, director Edgar Ulmer began an affair with Shirley Castle, who would eventually become his wife, later named Shirley Ulmer. At the time, however, she was married to Max Alexander, a producer at Universal, and the nephew of Universal Chief Carl Limley, who did not look kindly on outsiders upsetting his family. Castle left her husband for Ulmer, and the ensuing scandal resulted in Ulmer being blackballed from all the major Hollywood studios for the rest of his career. After a short period direct micro-budget indie films, he went to work for the budget studio producers releasing Corp, where he stayed the rest of his career. So let that be a lesson to you boys out there dipping your pen in company ink, especially if they're married. Don't be shitting where you're eating. The divorce rate in Hollywood from the 20s to like the 50s has got to be like a fucking record for any industry. Like if you look at any like director, actress, actor that was popular during that time, almost all of them were married like fucking five times. It's crazy. I'm going to blame purity culture for that. They had to be married so that they were good girls. So they married every Tom, Dick, and Harry that they dated so that they would be legit. And then when it would uh, the normal course of a relationship, they're like, ah, shit, we're married. We have to get divorced now. This is, I, you know, I said earlier, we'd find out, this is the first film collaboration of the Lugosi and Karloff who at the time, of course, were the, the biggest stars of horror. And despite the rumors that they were very competitive, we talked about this in Frankenstein versus Dracula and other movies that they starred in together, uh, this did mark the beginning of a pleasant working relationship between the two. They never became close personal friends, but they were quite amicable to each other and often enjoyed working together. The doorbell in Polzig's house plays the first four notes from the recurring theme from Richard Wagner's soap opera, D. Meistersinger, or as Karloff's character is named after the Austrian architect. We already mentioned that. Uh, this was the biggest hit for 1934 for Universal. The uh, ill-fated bus driver is a direct homage to the doorman in The Last Laugh from 1924, which Edgar Ulmer worked on as a production assistant. The British release of this film was changed uh, in title from The Black Cat to House of Doom because in Britain, black cats are considered a sign of good luck. And they are. It could be interpreted, though, that the cat was good luck, though. I mean, in some ways, I suppose. For um, Polzig. Yeah. 
Depends on whose luck, right? Yeah. I, I think House of Doom is a cooler title for this movie. So yeah, and they can't. Then they can't pull the clout off the Edgar Allan Poe, though. You are wise. <laughs> it's a dope-ass Black Label Society song, too. Off of, like, their Hangover music album, which I, I really dig, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> and Karloff and Lugosi would go on to star in eight movies together, by the way, in total. Ulmer also said he loosely based the character of Polzig on director Fritz Lang, who he knew from the German-Austrian film scene. And though he was a huge admirer of Lang, he felt him to be a sadist as a director. They re-released this film in the 50s by Real Art Pictures, and the film's title was changed to The Vanishing Body in an attempt to distinguish it from the other 1941 Black Cat. Well, that's not fair. This movie was first. And also, yeah, there's, kind of fucked up. <laughs> there's also, like, um, it's not really a vanishing body. There was no bodies that vanished. He's he he whisked away two live women and then one died and then he married the other. Ain't no vanishing bodies. That's a worse title than the black cat. <laughs> this has the uh, the nifty little opening credits like a sitcom with like the music and the, the pictures of each person and their title. This is the only universal movie to do that until the Wolfman in 1941. Karloff apparently had said how Lugosi was nervous and insecure at the idea of Karloff stealing scenes from him during this film. When Karloff tried to reassure Lugosi that he didn't believe in such nonsense, they worked well together. The sets, the Art Deco sets of the main rooms in Polzig's house were built for $1,500. Adjusted for inflation to be around thirty-three grand. that would cost today. Apparently, there was, you know, these old directors were fucking notoriously brutal Henry Cording apparently saved Lucille Lund's life when he got her off the slab table after he found her bleeding from the mouth. According to Lund, Ulmer was a sadist who retaliated against her when she turned him down when he asked to be her girl, his girlfriend. He also left her hanging in the glass case by her special canvas panties equipped with wires as they all went to lunch. She estimated she was left there for over an hour. It's unclear why no one else in the cast or crew helped her or even noticed her own absence. But uh, things certainly have changed. Why was she bleeding from the mouth, though? That's just like a casual, just like detail that they threw in there on, like, in this story. Like, where's the details on that? Why was she bleeding from the mouth laying on the slab? Did he, like, punch her in the mouth? Like, is that why? How? What? Yeah, who knows? The, the, it's a strange detail to give very little context to. Right, it's not like you can, like, ask anybody. It was almost 100 years ago. So, yeah, none of these fuckers are around. <laughs> uh, it's the first horror film to portray Satanism in the form of a satanic cult. And, of course, this would become a long-running trope in horror films. But, uh, yeah, this is why I chose it as the first film of this season. It's literally where this concept was created and, of course, used to great effect in many other places over time and in this movie. Yeah, um, I thought it was so interesting. I actually noted it when we watched it that um, they have to do some dialogue exposition of and like introducing the idea of Satanism. There's a there's a line in the movie where he's like, have you ever heard of Satanism? Worshipping the devil? Worshipping evil? Like, it was such a new concepts at the time that they had to like give a brief definition in the dialogue 
Yeah, I was wondering, like, thinking about the years, like, was this the first time that was done? And you just answered that question. But it's like, how freaky that must have been for everybody sitting there in that in the movie house. It's like, holy hell, what are they doing now? Yeah, I think another reason why this movie was considered so provocative at the time. I mean, censors in Italy, Finland and Austria banned the motherfucker outright. Others, other countries required cuts of the more gruesome scenes. Apparently, they dubbed in Lugosi's voice, instructing the servant to wait here before accompanying Karloff down to be to see his preserved dead wife. Learn about the budget and the profits here in a minute from old Muji, but I found it interesting. The salary of Boris Karloff was 7500 for this film as the lead. 3000 for Lugosi. Wow. Uh, 3125 for Manners. How the fuck did Lugosi get? Man, they really fucked him there. Uh, 900 for Julie Bishop and uh, 150 for Lucille Lund. $150 she got paid for this movie. The actual black cat meant more than her, uh, which shows you female status in Hollywood at the time and how they've worked hard to gain equality. The actual black cat earned $200. Lucille Lund only got 150 Damn. It's also possibly the first feature film that includes a digital clock seen in the bedside table in Peter's room. The opening at the train station was actually stock footage that was used two years earlier in the British movie Rome Express with Conrad Veidt from 1932. Much has been made of David Manners earning more than Bela Lugosi. In fact, his $2,000 salary included a hefty fee to be paid to the studio he had loaned out from to make this picture. So they paid him from that money. In the end, Manners actually probably learned much less than Bela Lugosi. Okay, well, that's a little better. The book that Polzig reads in bed is called The Rights of Lucifer. Uh, this was sold as the original shock theater package of 52 Universal titles to television in 1957. Followed a year later with Son of Shock, which added 20 more features. Allegedly, Kirk Hammett of Metallica purchased the costume worn by Boris Karloff in this film in the final scene. However, the original jacket that uh, from that screen-worn costume was torn to shreds by Car uh, Lugosi at the end of the movie. The jacket appears to be much smaller than the one that would have been worn by Karloff, who was several inches taller than Hammett. Yet, when standing behind his Karloff mannequin, Hammett appears to be about the same size and height. Hammett might have got fucked over, man. He might have got ripped off. Um, Edgar Ulmer reportedly shot scenes that he knew would never be allowed in the final cut that were even more extreme than what we got. He would use those to negotiate with the studio and say, okay, well, I'll remove these if other scenes that I knew were more important could be kept. So this is a smart psychological ploy from Ulmer. They still do that shit. They sure do. And then wrapping up the odd and interesting facts, the unnatural fear of cats is called allurophobia also known as Gatophobia. And with that, we'll close the door on the auditorium. But let's find out how much this puppy made. Let's look at the numbers. Numbers of the All right, Numbers of the Beast. The uh, movie was released um, on May 7th of 1934. Um, running time, a cool crisp uh, 66 minutes. The budget was around $95,745. The box office, $236,000. Uh, for today, that's like approximately $2 million budget, $5 million at the box office. So 
did good for a little low budget guy, even though back then that was kind of a big movie. Yeah, I mean, considered their biggest hit of the year, it was part of the horror boom coming off of Dracula and Frankenstein. Uh, it was the biggest box office hit of the year for Universal. Upon the film's original release, the New York Times wrote, The Black Cat is more foolish than horrible. The story and dialogue pile the agony on too thick to give a reasonable scare. The critical reputation, however, has grown over time. It sits at Rotten Tomatoes at 88% currently. The critic consensus reads that it makes the most of the star pairing and loads of creepy atmosphere. The Black Cat is an early classic in the Universal Monster Movie Library. In 2007, British critic Philip French called it the first and best of seven Carlos Lugosi joint performances. The movie unfolds like a nightmare that involves necrophilia, alorophobia, drugs, a deadly game of chess, torture, flaying, and a black mass with a human sacrifice. This bizarre, utterly irrational masterpiece, lasting little more than an hour, has images that bury themselves in the mind. And that's a great fucking review. In uh, the 2010s, Time Out pulled a group of authors, directors, actors, and critics who'd worked in horror. And this was voted as the 89th best horror film of all time by them and ranked number 68 in Bravo's 100 Scariest Moments for the Skinning Scene. Cramps guitarist and noted horror aficionado Poison Ivy has said of the scene that Carlos gets skinned alive. Karloff gets skinned alive at the end, but they show the shadow of it, and somehow that's more gruesome. Uh, the legacy of the film. There's a line that Vertigas utters that says, Supernatural, perhaps, baloney, perhaps not. That appears in the 1968 Monkeys film, Head, and also on the film's soundtrack, and it also appears in the comedian Sinbad's 1990 comedy special Brain Damage, as well as the D-Light song, uh, Singers of Groove is in the Heart, their song ESP from the 1990 album World Click. So it lived on in pop culture a little bit. And if you would like to own this film, Annie can tell you how to do it. Yeah, so in 2005, the film was released on DVD as part of the Bela Lugosi collection, along with Murders in the Room Morgue, The Raven, The Invisible Ray, and Black Friday. Uh, Eureka Entertainment released the film on Blu-ray in July of 2020 as part of their Masters of Cinema collection in the three Edgar Allan Poe adaptations starring Bela Lugosi set. That is very specific, which also included Murders in the Rue Morgue and The Raven. And then we weren't really able to find this anywhere streaming um, officially, um, but it is available yeah, on available the internet. Rent. You can rent it on Amazon for like four bucks. Yeah. It also, um, I watched it like two days ago and then today i um was looking back up to like just look at a couple scenes and it must have been added today to the uh, criterion channel oh well then oh. there you go nice. of course <laughs> <laughs> of course of course um also and i i did not include it in the notes for you annie i just i missed it somehow but i actually see that they did briefly put it out on VHS. You might be able to find it. Looks like it's out there on Amazon. Came out in 1997. Wasn't exactly a widely distributed thing, but that's an option too if that's your bag. But that's going to do it for the story of the 1934 
black cat. There's one thing left, and that's final motherfucking thoughts. And I just love this movie. I mean, a fucking tight 66 minutes. You can't complain at all about that. That's one thing I love about these early universal horror movies. They get to the fucking point and they get so much across with such simple sets and acting and dialogue. They're truly like, I mean, to me, they're as magical as any old movie you could imagine. They're my favorite old Hollywood movies. And this is the example of one of the best of them. Two of the greatest actors of, of all time, especially in horror, dueling basically the whole time. This weird satanic story with all of these fucked up twists and turns and this tale of revenge. And I love how they like try to kayfabe it all from the Americans as well. Like, you know, they leave the room and he's like, I know who you are. I'm going to get you, motherfucker. And they walk back in the room. And it's like, oh, yeah, hi, old friend. Um, that just there's so much going on in this movie. It's it's truly one of the best Universal pictures ever made. Oh uh, yeah, I uh, really enjoy this one too. Um, I did notice some things uh, while after watching it and kind of talking about it a little bit with Dan uh, before we recorded. And um, there's a lot of parallels that I can find. There, you can't convince me that um, Rocky Horror Picture Show was not influenced heavily by this movie um which, which i'm sure people are like what um but we've got you know uh they're not direct translations obviously but you know he's dr frankenfurter is building a person he's got a person you know in a box in his laboratory and um he's got bodies in his basement that he collects and um, they, uh, the bus crash and, a and a flat tire and they, and they just so happen to be going to this large estate that happens to be nearby that, um, you know, is possessed, you know, occupied by a crazy doctor scientist guy and his cult, um, and then a guy shows up that somehow has history with him, which would be Dr. Everett Scott. And then he's like, where's my missing family member? And he's like, ha ha, I killed him. Um, and, you know, like there was just, oh, there was a lot of things that I was like, hey, wait a minute. There's a lot of parallels here. And I thought that was pretty interesting. And you're not going to convince me otherwise. Um, but yeah, this was, this was a... Uh, a fun watch. I'm still confused uh, by the cat and how it seemingly had uh, a knife thrown through it and then appeared in additional scenes throughout the movie. Um, but maybe, like Dan said, it had nine lives and that's what we were supposed to get out of that, I guess. I don't know. Um, but yeah, it was really fun to see Lugosi and Karloff in the same movie. They were both fantastic. And uh, I think this is this is a this is a good foundational film that if you haven't seen, you should take the time to watch it. It's it, it's an hour. Just watch it. I agree with all those sentiments, uh, you know, for what, 65, 66 minutes, I guess, depending on which version you get. There's a, a lot going on. You know, there's there's great scenery, you know, great set design, great cinematography, fantastic acting. Um, you know, like Dan said, what do you get? You know, the review said satanic cults um, hinting around at maybe some necrophilia going on. Um, great revenge plot to hapless American tourists. 
you know, it's just a, a great little romp, you know, not only is it historical, it's just a, a really fun time and it doesn't take that long to watch it. So how about it? Yeah, I agree with everybody. I liked it a lot. Um, obviously getting to see Lugosi play something at least a little slightly different was fun. Um, Karloff was definitely like kind of like at the, still in the height of his powers here where he was super menacing. Uh, the movie was just, you know, weird enough and mean enough to make it like a little bit different from some of the the standard horror movies for the day. So, yeah, man, definitely recommend it. Awesome. Well, that's going to do it for this week's edition of the program. Kicking off the season strong with a strong film. If you didn't watch it before our recap, you definitely should. Go watch The Black Cat 1934 version. We'll be back next week where we're jumping up to the 1950s as we continue to tell the story of satanic horror. Uh, And we're looking at a movie that was originally released in England under one title and in the U.S. later with some scenes cut and repurposed under another title. But uh, I don't know which version we're going to get because these old movies, sometimes you just got to get what's out there. But uh, we are looking for uh, to 1957. And the movie in the UK was Night of the Demon in the US, Curse of the Demon. Some of the greatest and creepiest early practical effects ever in horror. And I'm super excited to dive on in and get cursed with all of you. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next week on Seeking Human Victims. This is not a test. This is not a test. Please remain calm. Unburied dead are coming back to life and seeking human victims. Seeking human victims. The Seeking Human Victims podcast is a product of One Good Scare Productions. It is written, edited, researched, and directed by Dan Wilson assistance by Fuji Grant and Annie Wilson. Original music is provided by Shredford as well as KT Grant. All other music and audio clips are property 